0: to in uh, in your Bibles or on your phone, or just listen along. John, chapter two. Our scripture is um, John chapter two, verse one through twelve. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." And Jesus said to her, "Woman." What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days.
1: Thanks, Abby. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. Man, 2020. It's exciting that it's a new year, but um, I don't know about you, but the weather, man, I'm just, I feel like I'm perpetually tired. It is the January blues. Thank you, Portland. Um, Well, this morning, we're going to continue uh, in our series in John's Gospel. You're welcome, Lori Schmidt, wherever you are. I thought you'd be happy about that. (laughs) Um, This morning, um, we're going to continue on in John's Gospel. We spent the fall in John's Gospel looking at just chapter 1 focusing on the different titles that John attributes to Jesus. Um, Specifically, titles like Messiah, Son of Man, uh, King of Israel, Lamb of God, God Incarnate, and so on. Um, Remember, John's aim in writing this account of Jesus' life is to continually get us to ask the question, who do you think Jesus really is? Who do you say Jesus is. He's constantly pushing us to see Jesus not as we want him to be, but as he actually is, right? Remember John chapter 20, the end of the book. John sort of gives us the the summary hey, this is what this whole book, this account of Jesus' life, this gospel, this is what it's been about. He says in John 20, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Which is funny because, right, what's the next book in the Bible after John? Acts. What are the acts, right? They're the, the signs of God's spirit come down and the miracles and the work of the early church. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, so the ones that you just read, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that believing, by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the sort of summary statement, the reason why John has written us this account of Jesus' life. And so now we move into this next section of his gospel, which is really chapters 2 through 12, about 10 chapters straight. And and we call this section the Book of Signs, the Book of Signs. there's two sides to the miracles of Jesus. Uh, there's this, this side of Jesus' miracles that the synoptic gospels, which are just the other three gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about Jesus' miracles. Um, and when they do, they focus particularly on the power of the miracle itself. Think about Jesus calming the storm, right? It's this incredible moment There's this power and authority that Jesus displays over nature, right? It's the miracle itself is the power. Um, The Greek word that they use for miracle there is "dynamis," which means powers or mighty works. And so the emphasis in the other gospels on Jesus' miracles are in the display of power and authority that he shows. Now, we go to John's gospel, and John likes to be different than the others, so here's the word that John uses, it's called Simea, which means signs, okay? So for John, the emphasis for Jesus' miracles, it's not so much on the miracle itself, the power, uh, the authority that's in it, um, but instead that, that sign that we see is meant to get you and I, the reader, to ask ourselves, what does this act mean? What is the significance of this miracle or this sign? There's something greater going on. And this, again, right? What is John's aim? He's constantly wanting us to get to ask that question. Who is Jesus? Who do you really see him as? And is that who he really is? Not only that, in his miracles, in his signs, what do they mean? And What is the the purpose of each of the signs? There's seven signs, just seven miracles, that John records in his gospel, and so the book of Signs again, chapters two through twelve, um, they contains two large blocks of stories. So chapters two through four, and you don't, this isn't, you, we'll remind you of this later. Don't feel like this is a, a test; you're going to have to remember everything on. But chapters two through four, we're going to see Jesus encounter four Jewish institutions. Right? What is the institution he's encountering today? A wedding, right? A sacred, ceremonial, Jewish wedding. Just later, in, after this section, in chapter 2, we'll see him go to the temple, right? That's the second institution. So he encounters four Jewish institutions in the first couple chapters here. And then in chapters 5 through 10, we see him encounter four Jewish feasts, like the Passover meal, and so on. And each one of these, right, all eight in total... They're meant to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment or the true reality to which each of those things point. Jesus is the fulfillment of the wedding and the wedding feast that we read about this morning. And each story sort of follows a basic pattern. I think you'll recognize this really quickly. Jesus performs a sign or a miraculous uh, symbolic action. Right? The people respond with questions, objections, or confusion. Then Jesus riddles often. He will riddle um, questions or sayings or parables that invite conversation, um, but sometimes it just causes more confusion. Right, And then finally, the dialogue eventually will escalate to the point where people will either receive him and accept him or deny him and walk away. So that's kind of the overview of where we're headed in this next section in John's Gospel. And this morning we encounter this Jewish wedding that Jesus finds himself at in Cana of Galilee. Um, it's interesting, I'll say on the front end of the sermon, uh, the, the abundance of good wine was a common symbol of the messianic kingdom come in the scriptures. Um, If you look at Genesis 49, I'll read it really quickly. Verses 10 and 11, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So it's talking about the coming kingdom of God. What will it be like when the Messiah comes and he reigns? Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foil to the vine, And his donkeys colt to the choice vine, right? What is the vine? The vine is where grapes are grown. And what do grapes make? Wine. He has washed his garments in wine. There's so much wine that this Messiah, right? There's such an abundance that he washes his clothes in the wine. That seems kind of strange. Or Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces." This is what the coming kingdom will be like. And the wine that we see in these messianic sort of pro- prophetic passages throughout the scriptures is meant to show us that there's this abundance, this lavish, incredible abundance. There's no scarcity in the kingdom of God, in the Messiah's reign. So with that, let's begin looking at our text. This morning we come to the, this passage of, of Jesus at this wedding, and I have to say it's one of my personal favorite um, stories about Jesus in all of the Gospels. And so my hope is twofold for us, quickly. One, that you would simply marvel at this piece of literature. This is an incredible piece of literature. The amount of symbolism, creativity that we see on display in John's writing through the, the empowerment of God's Spirit helping him is incredible. Um, let this, just that alone, speak to you and minister to you. Secondly, that you would marvel at the beauty of Jesus and find him more worthy of giving your entire life to. That you would marvel at the beauty of Jesus and find him more worthy of giving your life to. That's my hope. Um, as, as with most sermons, it's difficult to cover everything that's in this passage that you I could say. Um, and so we'll peel back some layers, but yes, I probably won't say everything that you've heard about it, um, that's okay. You'll thank me in an hour when you want to eat lunch. All right. So to begin, I want to ask you a question. What's the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about why Jesus came to earth? Answer that question just real quickly in your head. What's the first thing that comes into your mind when I ask this question, why did Jesus come? Asked a little bit differently. What was the primary characteristic of Jesus that he came to bring to you? Justice? Mercy? uh, Wrath? Salvation? Forgiveness? Grace? Good vibes? What was it? What is it? Hold that in the back of your mind. The mission statements of a company um, are similar to the first action that a king would have taken in Jesus' day. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, what is a mission statement, right? It sums up what a company is all about. And we see them all the time. They've gotten shorter and shorter because we have a harder and harder time remembering anything because we take in so much information. Snickers, what's their missions or what's their sort of slogan? Hungry, satisfied, something like that. Subways was eat fresh, right? Some of them are a little bit longer. When I worked at Starbucks, um, it was to inspire and nurture the human spirit one cup, one person, and one neighborhood at a time. Pretty good, right? I like that. Um, Maybe you've heard this one before. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These mission statements sort of sum up, and they summarize for us what that organization is all about. In the same way, in Jesus' day... How would a new king come to show his people that he was reigning over, how would he come to show them what his reign and his rule would be like? The first major action, the, the first major decision or kingly action that that king would do or make, right, was sort of his mission statement. So if you had a king who wanted to show that he would be dominant and authoritative, he would probably go to war. And that first move would show his people what kind of king he would be. A more benevolent king would maybe focus on the crops and the harvests and blessing the people abundantly. But the first action that the king made or move that he did showed the people, okay, this is what we should expect from this ruler. What I want to submit to you this morning is that in Jesus' first action as the King of Israel, that we see recorded here in John's Gospel, in turning water into wine, not grape juice, wine, Jesus shows us that his mission was to bring true and lasting joy to a broken and hurting world. His primary mission was to bring true and lasting joy to a broken and hurting world. That is the primary quality of what he came to do, to bring his people true joy that never runs out, that never ends, that never fails. It just gets better and better and better. And better doesn't always mean easier, but it does mean better. So, was that the first thing that came into your mind when I asked that question? Jesus came primarily to bring us joy not usually what I think of. Read with me verses 1 through 4, 5. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. For some reason, John never names her specifically, uh, explicitly in his gospel, Mary. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Man, what a weird interaction. Um, we'll get to it in just a second. But first off, I want you to recognize that through this first sign, John introduces Jesus as a person who shared in the joyful friendliness of a wedding feast, and that's just really interesting, right? There, there's so much simplicity to this sign or this miracle, right? He turned water into wine, but John is saying, "Don't miss it." Like, he's saying way more than just that, right? He, he's not. John is so intentional about the the order in which he tells things and he communicates to us. This is a big deal that this is the first thing we see Jesus go and do after. He kind of recruits his disciples. He sits at a wedding. The wedding feast was an accepted symbol in the kingdom of God. It's an accepted symbol of God's reign, of his goodness, of his joy. So you have to think, in contrast to to John the Baptist and his followers, who were like these self-denying, ascetic followers of John the Baptist, we're not going to do anything fun. Right? We're just going to deny all the pleasures that are before us to follow God. And here comes Jesus, probably with a bunch of John's disciples who are now following Jesus, showing them, no, the true path to Yahweh, to life, is joy. And I have actually come to bring you that joy. Mark 2.18-20 says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, "How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not?" Jesus answered, "How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast." Right? So so John the Baptist or John sort of attributes Jesus, likens him and his disciples to this, this marriage feast. And that's what we see in that passage there in Mark 2. And he also likens the kingdom of God to a marriage banquet, which is really interesting. Matthew 22 says that Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So already we, we begin to see The joy and the celebratory nature that Jesus came to bring in coming to earth. Now, there's this this interesting pattern that that begins here with the first sign, and it carries through the rest of John's gospel. Jesus is petitioned by his mother, right, to perform a miracle. um, This miraculous work, he seems to refuse, um, but then he proceeds to do it what? Like, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? He does it with, um, you could say he does it with Satan when he's tempted in the desert, turn these stones into bread, right? He doesn't do it, but when the 5,000 are hungry in the desert, does he multiply bread? He does. Um, we see it also, let's see, what else? Uh, in John 4, right, Jesus seems to refuse the request of the, the royal official whose son is sick, Right, and, and he kind of leaves thinking that Jesus isn't going to do anything, but he comes home to find his son, is, who was just nearly on his deathbed, is healthy and whole, um, but he seemed to refuse initially. The Syrophoenician woman's daughter does the same thing with her, where it seems that he says no to her, but then she's healed. And again here, we see Jesus meet Mary's request, kind of seeming not into it, and yet he does it. So what's with the pattern? Um, A commentator, Leslie Newbigin, he says this. I think it's helpful. He says, Jesus will not become the instrument of any purpose except for that of his Father. But in sovereign independence in his own time and his own way, he will give signs which his disciples will recognize and which will enable them to believe. They will not find their petitions immediately granted But as they go humbly and believingly along the path of obedience, they are again and again surprised by joy. Things happen which authenticate themselves as signs of Jesus' love and power. They have his signature, they manifest his glory. And so, when we first read this section, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, It's not my time, mom, it's not my time to do a miracle. Right? It feels like he's saying it's the hour's not come yet for me to perform a sign or to reveal my power. But we know that that can't be what it means cuz he still does it, right? So what's going on? Is this one of those times when your mom sort of comes to you and says, "You need to clean, you know, your room's dirty." Right? And she kind of looks at you like, "You better go clean it." And then you just kind of are like, "No, I don't want to." And she starts to count, "1, and then finally, right before like, you know, 2.9, she's, you're like, okay, and you go and do it. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he just kind of giving it in? Oh, all right, don't get mad at me, Mom. No, that's not what's happening. The key to making sense of this interaction, this kind of strange interaction, is in that word, hour. All right, it says, my hour has not yet come. So this is crucial. Every time that word is used in John's Gospel, what's it referring to? It's referring to Jesus' passion moment that 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 time on the cross right his, his going to the cross for us for our sin um, it's referring to Jesus' death right John 7:30 so they were seeking to arrest Jesus no but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come it wasn't time for him to die and so every single time it's used it's talking about his death and so now we see why this is really strange because Mary comes to him, and while it doesn't have, like, it doesn't seem like she's asking a question, the text implies that she kind of is, like, it's kind of like saying, like, hey, they're out of wine, you know, and uh, you might be able to do something about that. Um, Right? So, So she's kind of asking this question, and Jesus basically says to her, it's not time for me to die yet. Strange. Why is he thinking about his own death right now? Um we've all been I'd say most of us have been to a wedding, yes. Um when you go to someone else's wedding, whether or not you're you're currently married when you're there or you have been married for 20 years, like at some point during that ceremony, you're going to think about your own wedding. You're either going to look back and remember, right, what it was like, what what you'll maybe compare and contrast and Um, maybe in a less holy moment, be really critical of the wedding you're at. Or, you'll look forward to and daydream about what will my wedding be like one day. And so, this is what Jesus is thinking about. He's thinking about his own wedding. This is the only possible answer to what's going on in this passage. He's thinking about the moment that he gets to sit down with his bride and tastes the sweet wine at his wedding, um, and he's thinking about what it's going to take for that day to happen. He's thinking about what it's going to cost him for that wedding day to take place. We are his bride, the church, and for us to be made good and righteous and pure and holy, Jesus knows as he sits in this celebratory setting, joy all around him, he sits there thinking about, realizing, remembering, knowing I will have to die in order for the wedding to take place. That's what he's thinking about. He recognizes the tremendous cost it will take for his wedding to take place, for his bride to make that walk. Okay, so notice that Mary immediately submits her will to Jesus's, right? What does she say? Do whatever he tells you. He doesn't say I'm going to do anything, but she she trusts, right? She trusts. Despite Jesus seeming to ignore her, she expectantly waits with faith for God to move. She trusts Jesus' will, and she knows that he's worth trusting because the will of Jesus rests in the will of the Father, and therefore, do whatever he says. Consider for a moment, then, Jesus' tenacity for doing the Father's will before anyone or anything else. He's so committed to obeying the Father that it's all he can think about in this moment, right? Why? Why? Because Jesus knows that the only path to truly living and thriving is for the the will of God to take place in his life. The mission of Jesus, right, to seek and save a rebellious and broken people, is the will of our loving Father in heaven. And what we will see time and time again throughout the Gospel of John is, is Jesus trusting and choosing to obey his Father first and foremost particularly when he's requested to do something miraculous, right? He'll he'll say, my hour's not yet come, or it'll say, it's not time yet, because Jesus is so ridiculously committed to seeing the will of the Father take place. He knows that it's what's best for him, even though it means death for him. He knows it's what's best for us and what's best for the world. I wonder... What is one thing in your life that would be different if you borrowed some of Jesus' courage that we see here in this passage to obey the Father? What's something that would be different if your will were willing to, if you were willing to submit and lay down your preferences in that area of your life to the Father's will, trusting that he brings joy, that it is good for you, What would change in your life? What relationship would be different? Um, What area of your life would be different? What voices are you listening to that need to be laid before the Father, before His voice, allowing that to determine where your joy comes from and what you do? Okay. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, just a little bit of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine." and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Pretty interesting. So, remember, we're looking at a scene from a Jewish, a Jewish institution, right? A, a wedding celebration. This means that this event or this ceremony, which, by the way, how long was a Jewish wedding? Was it like four hours like ours? Yeah, it was like days long. They knew how to party. They knew how to celebrate. Right, so this wedding would have taken place under the commands of the Torah, of the law. So the six stone uh, purification jars were proof of this fact. Each jar, right, says it held 20 to 30 gallons of water. They were used as rites of purification. So the guests um, and the people in the wedding, right, were cleaned and were made clean um, as they attended the ceremony. Um, And this is because Israel was to be a nation that was consecrated for the Lord. It was made pure and holy for God even though they lived in a broken, uh, dirty world. Um, and so now we begin to see a little bit more the significance of Jesus' first sign, this miracle. Um, it's interesting because the act of purification, right, the act of needing to be cleaned isn't exactly an exciting thing. Um, it, it reminds us that we're dirty, right? So it's not necessarily a positive action per se. Um, the act of purification was both a gift of God's mercy to his people, but it was also a sobering reminder of their brokenness. And so it's interesting that Jesus turns this purification water into wine, and there's several meanings we can get from this text. All right? First and, and most plainly is just that water became wine. Cool? Secondly, what was meant to be used to clean the outside, the exterior body or the visible person, was now a symbol of the cleaning of the interior heart, or the invisible. Interesting. Third, the purification water reminds us of our need to be made clean. It's not meant to be consumed. The wine not only symbolizes the cleaning of the heart, but is meant to be consumed, as Psalms 140 says, or 104 says, because it gladdens the hearts of men. Fourth, the cleansing water removes blemishes, but it does not give the fullness of joy. Not only is the blood of Jesus now available in abundance, which is what the wine symbolizes, the blood of Christ, but it reminds us of the abundance of joy that we find in Jesus. So Christ gave his body, right? He sheds his blood as a sacrifice for his people to bring them joy. And not only joy, but to show them that the truest form of love is sacrifice. And every single week after the sermon, during the first song, what do we do? We go to the table, right? We celebrate, and we remember, and we remind ourselves, and we practice again this memory that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice. So we remember that the truest form of love is sacrifice, sacrifice, and that he came to bring joy, right? The the, the juice or the, the wine represents his blood. What does his blood do? It sanctifies us, it cleans us. And it doesn't only clean us out here, it cleans us where we need it most in our heart. I remember my own wedding six years ago, and the other four weddings that Julie and I were in, I think it was four, that summer. Um, It was an expensive summer. Weddings are not cheap, let alone your own. So I've gotten to experience that moment, that incredible moment um, when the bride turns the corner, right, and you see her for the first time as she makes the walk down the aisle. It never gets old. I've been to a dozen weddings at least now. Every time I tear up, it doesn't matter what that woman looks like in everyday life. In that moment, She's the most beautiful thing that exists. It's incredible. The, and, and the wedding dress, right? What's the color? White. No one else gets to wear all white to a wedding. If you have, shame on you. You probably know you have <laughs> and that you shouldn't have done it. But the, the color of the, the style has changed, right? What the dress stylistically looks like. But the color has never changed because we got it right, right? Right? White is a color that symbolizes purity, beauty, light. And so every single time the bride makes that walk and I see that and I'm like, I've seen it a thousand times, it feels like. But I just, every time it gets me, I tear up. It's an incredible moment. She looks terrific, unbelievable. Hear this now. Have you ever thought that this is exactly how Jesus sees you? The same way that the, the, the groom standing and you look, you know, so often, you're not only looking at the bride as she walks down the aisle, you're looking at the groom to see what he's thinking and what his reaction is, right? That's almost just as good. Like, And it's, and it's, so, it's great when you see like a big goof like me start crying or whatever. You're like, oh, he is human. <laughs> like, it's so good for us. And... That look in his eye, right, for her is so special. And that's the look that Jesus continually has for you and for me. He looks at you and he thinks, Terrific, pure, good, holy, lovely. I want you. That's what he says. He loves you. Do you believe that? Feel that this morning. Pray that over your life. Accept and welcome that reality that Jesus continually sees you that way. Because he does. Another thing that we ought to do. We need to take credit for what Jesus has done. Notice, right? The bridegroom. What happens? The master of the feast is there and he realizes... Whoa, normally people put out the good stuff towards the beginning of the week, right? Because it's eventually expensive. It's going to run out. And then as people have drunk and are feeling it a little bit, then you put out the more choice or the less choice wine, the, 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 the cheap stuff. But no, 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 no. You save the good stuff until now. And who gets the credit for it? Jesus? The bridegroom. The guy who's responsible for the wedding, making sure that everything's going according to plan, that there's enough. He gets all the credit for what Jesus did. No credit goes to Jesus. The only ones who knew were those who filled the jars with water. And Mary. Take credit for what Jesus has done. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means taking credit for what Jesus has done. Counting his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness as your own. That's why we can trust. When I say that Jesus looks at you the same way that a groom looks at his bride, he sees you and he wants you and he sees you as beautiful and good and holy, you can trust that's true because Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for you and literally through his blood purified and cleansed you so that we can say, No, I'm not good. But when the Father looks at me, I point to Jesus. And the Father says, good enough. More than good enough. Perfect. Righteous. Holy. Think about this. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. I remember I heard him preach on this passage years and years and years ago. I never forget this, this line that he had in there. Maybe in 50 years I'll think of something this good. He said, Think about this, friends. Jesus Christ sat amidst all the joy, all the celebration of that wedding, that day at, right, at the wedding in Cana. He sat amidst all the joy and the celebration, sipping the cup of sorrow. What was he thinking about? His death, his own wedding, and what it would cost. And he did that so that you and I can sit amidst the pain and the suffering and the brokenness of this world, sipping the cup of sorrow? No, the cup of joy. The cup that's reminding us that there's, the best is yet to come. It's not, right? The good wine... It was saved until now. It wasn't used up at the beginning. Like, it just keeps getting better. In this story, Jesus is surrounded by all kinds of joy, all kinds of celebration, thinking about his death and the cost that it would bring to him in his own life. And he sat there, and he, and he knows, right, as he's thinking about what it's going to cost to get us at his wedding. He knows our blemishes and our failures and our rebellion. And he does that, and he sits in that pain Right, Pain, that the grief that he felt literally caused him to sweat blood. Talk about stress. And he takes that on as our sacrifice so that we can sit in the midst of incredible difficulty and trial and suffering and pain and brokenness in this world. Trusting that there is a day coming where it will all be wiped away. Every tear. All the sad things will come untrue. God will make things right. And I want to end real quick. On verse 10, look again at verse 10. It's a profound little line. The master of the feast calls the bridegroom and he says to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is like a mini parable for life. It's like a mini parable for life. Both for the believer and for the unbeliever, right? For the believer, the best is yet to come, like we've just been saying. And so you can fully enjoy what's right in front of you right now because you know it just gets better. It doesn't mean that it gets easier, but it does get better. It gets more fulfilling. But for the unbeliever, right, this, what, this life, this world is as good as it's going to get. This is as good as it's going to get. So they need to suck every last drop out of this life. And that's just so interesting. There's something profoundly simple and poetic about that, that little line. They thought they had the good wine already, but the best was yet to come. Um, last night, Julie and I were watching this documentary. If you're interested in what the title is, I'll share with you after. But um, it's, it's really heavy, and so I'd rather not say up front. But um, it shows the extremes of unfettered capitalism and materialism. And it's it's kind of about people with extreme wealth and what that's like, and what it what money and greed drive people to do, even those who don't have a lot of it yet. Um, it's not for the the light-hearted. Uh, it's it's a really gritty, honest look at a lot of the brokenness in cap you know unfettered capitalism and materialism. And um, I, there's this woman who talks about her need to fix. Her exterior right her look she had a kid she's got loose skin on her tummy she's not happy with just overall her appearance and so um, you know during the interview you can tell she's had some work done and she talks about sort of that experience of taking out a bunch of debt on a credit card flying to Brazil because it's cheaper there to get a bunch of plastic surgery augmentation this and that everywhere Um, and then it cuts to her again and she's talking about her daughter, her 12-year-old daughter, and how she was just so bewildered. And in tears, she starts to say, my daughter carved, like with a knife, the word dead into her forehead. Right? You're dead to me is what she wanted to communicate. And she says, this woman, this, got all this plastic surgery done. Right? In such She says, I can't believe that she would do that to God's creation. (laughs) What? I can't believe she'd do that. It's so wrong to do that to your body. Like, how how are you missing it so much? Like, something so... My point is this. There's so much pain and difficulty in this life. And so much of it is self-inflicted right? So much of it is self-inflicted. The, 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 the documentary, it just, it shows that the pursuit of money and of greed and of stuff is constantly trying to fill a void in here with experiences out here. You're trying to change this exterior look, this perception that people have of you, this, this ideal you're trying to attain. And so often, Our joy is taken from us because we we sort of self-inflict. It's like violence we do to ourselves when when we think money and success and reputation will bring us joy. Because it never does. It never does. And I want to declare this morning that Jesus came to bring life and life to the full. And he does care about your joy. So many of us forget that God even wants us to be happy or to be filled with joy, and that's what so many of us lose. We, we get convinced, and, and this documentary is literally living proof of story after story after story, hedge fund owner, CEO, strip club owner, like porn uh, actress, like you name it. There's just story after story of people saying, yeah, basically the story they're giving us is, I don't think that God wants me to be happy, and so I'm going to do what I want to do. And that is a lie. Jesus came to bring joy, to bring happiness to us, and true joy that never fades, it lasts forever. They thought that they had the good wine already, but the best was yet to come. Remember, the first act of a king, right? Jesus here, turning water into wine, shows us that his mission was to bring true and lasting joy. That's what he's about. This is the primary quality of what he came to do. May this become the defining characteristic or marker of what we think of when we consider why Jesus came. He sees us as his bride, holy, righteous, justified, because we get to take the credit for what he did. And he far exceeds our expectations. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, I just, I submit, Lord, that I often forget or willingly in rebellion at times choose not to trust that you are for my joy. I suspect I'm not alone. God, we want to be people of peace, people of love, and people who are marked by joy. The reality is that the church should be the most celebratory group of people in the entire city, let alone the world. Like Central Bible should, should know how to throw the best parties, have the most fun, laugh, smile, know how to suffer well. Not losing hope, but God, we lose, we lose sight of it. We, we, we forget that you are for our joy. And what you have for us is better than what we have for us. And so, Jesus, I just ask that you would help us this week, in these coming days, to be more mindful of why you came, to be more aware of the joy that comes through your blood, there is enough, there is more than enough, would you help us Jesus to believe that you far exceed our expectations and we know that because we recognize, so many of us recognize the, the interior unhappiness and sense of longing and dissatisfaction with who we are or where we're at and but God you come and Come into our lives and you fill us with true joy that changes our hearts, that lasts, it never fails, it never runs out like it did at the wedding in Cana. Would you help us to believe that and trust that and to become people who are marked by joy? We love you and thank you in your name, amen.
0: We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.